thing that makes the average citizen puke and look at this system and say, yeah, you know, what's going on? I don't know anything about this man except I've read bad stuff about him. And uh, I, I don't I don't like, you know, I don't like what I read about him. We are more than just one coin. We create the world around this coin. Come. Invention. Come. Come. All right. Take four. In five, four, <laughs> three, two. The evil has gone. Hello, welcome to Grubstakers, the podcast about billionaires. My name is Sean P. McCarthy, and I'm joined today by my co-hosts... Steve Jeffries. Andy Palmer. Yogi Paywall. And so, we're talking today about one of the running themes on this podcast, capital accumulation. Uh, What I hope we've been able to show with this podcast is that people who are rich in the 1700s and the 1800s, their descendants are almost all even more rich today just based on simple annual return on passive investment capital. And so we're talking today about the Hearst family, who many listeners might know for William Randolph Hearst, the inspiration for the movie Citizen Kane, who helped start the Spanish-American War and all that. But what I hope we can show is that his descendants are still running the United States today. Uh, According to Forbes magazine, the Hearst family has a combined net worth of about 28 billion U.S. dollars as of 2016, divided among 67 family members. Uh, And joining us today for this discussion on the Hearst family, uh, one of our uh, favorite comedians, our guest is the host of the Roast Ghost podcast. He's a champion roast battler featured on Comedy Central's Roast Battle. He's a very funny stand-up comedian, and he is a former employee of a Hearst company. So uh, Eli Sayers is joining us. Eli, thank you for being with us today. Hey, what's up, Sean? Thank you. And so I guess I wanted to just start by asking you, uh, what, if any, impressions of the Hearst family and William Randolph Hearst did you have uh, coming into this podcast? Coming of the Hearst family, all I knew was uh, all I knew was Citizen Kane. That, that that's what I knew about the Hearsts. So I just always thought he was just this and really overrated dude. Rosebud. <laughs> He's good. Citizen and Kane's good, uh, working no, for. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I knew he was a rich. I tell you, until like very recently, I was very like. Uh, I don't know, not like this, not like like with rich people. I think a lot, most people in the country's attitude is not that they're good, but that they're just, oh, they just are the way there is the sky and there are mountains. There are rich people. What are you going to do about right. it? Why would we even, th- why would we even think about changing that? And so I just thought he was one of those entities that you'd hear about. Like I'd hear Rockefeller too. He seems, seems like he did pretty well for himself as well, but uh, I never looked into that shit. Did, is there a citizen Kane of Rockefeller? Uh, there will be blood, maybe. <laughs> uh, not that I'm aware of. Hell yeah. A fucking watchable movie, thank God. <laughs> yeah, Orson Welles <laughs> is, like, the only guy who got famous for a biopic and then proceeded to have a much weirder life than the guy he portrayed in his <laughs> biopic. Look, he was really good in the Transformers animated movie. <laughs> <laughs> he was so good in that. Yeah, Third Man is sick, though. That's a great movie. And Citizen Kane's great, too. I'm just shitting on it. But no, I didn't know, I didn't know shit about Hearst. I still don't. I'm here to learn, honestly. From what I know about Wells, like, it, it, during the Transformers movie, it seems like they just stuck a microphone in front of him at his favorite restaurant that he refused to leave. <laughs> just, <laughs> just to, like, say these words. Uh, Eli, I did want to ask you, uh, just working for a Hearst company, how accurate was the movie Citizen Kane? 
Oh, dude, there are just sleds everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> and they all represent something. Not all, it's not that's the, the misconception is that it's just childhood. It's not just childhood. There's an adolescent sled. There's a first kiss sled. There's so many fucking sleds. Uh, it's just, I don't know, dude. I didn't, I didn't see nothing. I was just like in this room off to the side doing bitch work. So like, I didn't see the goings on. I just, there's like a trickle down chilling effect that made the entire place sad and miserable. Like the entire, like just the atmosphere there. I worked at Wal- I was a door greeter in Walmart in uh, Ohio at Walmart. And this place was the saddest work environment I've ever been. <laughs> and I don't know, dude. It it was just dreary, man. No one there was happy. The fucking again, I told you, like I'm I'm progressive-ish, but I grew up in Bama and I grew up pretty conservative. And like maybe this is my own like stupid gender shit, but like every dude who worked there, I don't know what the fuck they did. But like, you shouldn't eat salad like every day. Like you shouldn't <laughs> buy a salad. For, that shouldn't be your if you're a man. I'm sorry how I don't care if this makes you sound regressive. Every single day you should not be buying a fucking salad for lunch. Every day? I mean, that's just every day they do that, man. Yeah, it's psychopathic. That's like some straight like if I don't have my grass every day I won't become the master I desire, you know? <laughs> yeah, I don't I don't know, dude. It was just a it was just a real uh sad miserable place. Uh, I wish I knew I wish I got to see more of the higher-ups. The higher ups would you like be mean to everyone uh, or like snub everyone usually, except for they'd be nice to me for some reason. I don't know why. I think just like the way you're nice to like a dog, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely noticed that when I was uh, when I was like a receptionist at this ad place that it was it was kind of the, the same sort of attitude where they were all nice to me, probably because they didn't see me as someone who was trying to get something from them. Like I was just, just there to like check in and get my paycheck and leave. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. But there is that like fucking rich guy shit. There was this one dude who just like would walk around. He was like tall, like he, he was a super confident, like would not thank you for holding the door for him, would not acknowledge your existence. And it's like, dude, why are you so fucking? That's the first time I realized that like I used to be all like, ah, the white male privilege, whatever. But like this dude, like, dude, you were born white and tall and literally you just think you're a fucking God right, because right. of that. He was the poster child for your eye-opening that was the white male privilege myth. <laughs> hey, he was a beautiful man. I'm not going to lie. What, <laughs> Sean? Yeah, I wish I had more. I wish I saw, like, uh, sneaky uh, shit happen, but I didn't. Like, it was just, I don't know. Or I wish I saw the real evil shit happen. Well, Sean. Well, right. well, yeah, why is Sean not even here? Yeah, for those, for those listening, Sean is still uh, reporting from Connecticut. Uh, yes. where he has he has brought the coronavirus in force. Uh, they've uh, uh, surpassed Washington State in total number of infections now and deaths, I believe. Really? They passed the deaths too, huh? Yeah, yeah. 971 in Connecticut versus 567 in Washington. Wow, Sean, how do you feel being responsible for the tragedy that is people dying in the state you're currently in? Well, I do want to say that uh, apparently a listener hit us up on Twitter to say that she unsubscribed from our Patreon over me fleeing the state. Uh, so I am happy that I was able to take some money out of Andy and Yogi's mouths. I think she was just a regular subscriber. I think the Patreon people are used to your shit. <laughs> But I wanted to push back on this because 
uh, I am sheltering in place, whereas you and Yogi are going out every day. And I think not uh, true. First of all, first of all, I'm not going out every day. That's that's never been the case. The fact that you presume I would ever leave my hovel shows your incompetence in knowing my lifestyle, Sean. Yeah, I also just get on a bike and don't interact with anyone, whereas you also said you went to Connecticut explicitly so you could go outside. <laughs> no, I mean, walk around the yard. I do not leave the house. I, I do think it's... it's it's it, you, you do earn, I think, the title of the King of Irony, where after the last, I would say, year and a half, you've been railing against leftist support of open borders, and then when faced with the most mild travel restriction, uh, just a suggestion that maybe don't leave where you are because you could spread a virus to anyone. You're like, that yeah, doesn't apply to me. I'm out. No, What's I really think you need to. Sean told me that just as a goof, he was going to nursing homes and sneezing on the doorknobs. <laughs> <laughs> now, this is this is where I push back because. Under Cuomo's voluntary restrictions, uh, you're supposed to shelter in place and not leave your house for non-essential anything, except for the grocery store and the pharmacy. Don't leave your house. And Yogi and Andy are going out, uh, coughing in people's mouths on the hiking trail, uh, rubbing up against uh, public... Um, uh, yeah, don't get sign those sign poles. <laughs> I like how Sean thinks an Indian person is hiking right now. What are you, fucking nuts? <laughs> Well, to be fair, Sean, and I'm going to say this about me and you. We we both have this where people see people see you and they assume you have the virus. <laughs> <laughs> me too, though. Me too. Look at me. Look at me. I mean, I look fucking sickly. Exactly. We are automatically we are automatically practicing social distancing with an Uber driver for two hours. You couldn't even rent a car. You had to subject a third party for two hours. Oh, Sean, he took an Uber? Yeah, oh, yeah. He, took a, he told me he took an Uber poll. <laughs> <laughs> Cuomo, though, uh, that dude's just like a less endearing Scaramucci. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I would much rather have right. Governor Scaramucci. But, like, look, I'm willing to admit that what I did was morally wrong, but I think Cuomo should be invited as a guest on this podcast to explain under New York social distancing, stay-at-home orders, whether or not what I'm doing is more morally wrong than what Andy and Yogi are doing by leaving the house. There's actually an explicit provision in the Pause Act that uh, you are encouraged to leave the house for solitary exercise. So, um, Mm. yeah, but yeah, let's get Cuomo on. Let's see what he thinks. Y'all like Cuomo? I think you're finding a loophole. Nah, fuck Cuomo. Yeah, I don't like Cuomo. Yeah. He looks dumb. Yeah. He, looks, yeah. he looks like his favorite book is Goodfellas. <laughs> the movie Goodfellas is his favorite book. <laughs> he just like puts the subtitles on. He's like, oh, I read it. I read Goodfellas. <laughs> I don't think he's read a book in quite some time. One last point, though. Uh, shaming and attacking me for doing this is actually Wait, a way of individualizing. <laughs> <laughs> is actually a way of individualizing blame and excusing the failures of the Cuomo administration. 
because the only reason there's 10,000 dead in New York is because this guy didn't lock down the city, you know, two or three weeks when we all before, when we all knew he should have, when we all saw what was happening in Italy. So actually attacking me is a way of uh, making, blaming individual choices rather than government inaction for the mass death event we are all experiencing. I mean, we and can, I would we, like an apology, we know you personally, frankly. we can still attack you for being a dumbass <laughs> without drawing broader societal conclusions. I'm just clowning on my buddy. Do you think that in New York City, do you think that Little Italy has it the worst? Yeah, probably. Like, is it is it like correlate to the to regular Italy? <laughs> they did say like early on that Europeans were the one bringing it to the U.S. and in Russia from Italy. So, if Little Italy's got a large Italian population, which by the name it does, then pro- then I don't know. And it's right Actually, next to Chinatown. No, is, Come on, guys. The, wait, the writing's no, on the this wall. is fucked up. This is fucked. This is fucked up because I remembered that there's not a lot of Italians living in Little Italy now. I was like, oh shit, no, a lot of Chinese people live there. And then I'm like, oh fuck, it's probably way worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> Little Italy is like if you took two different anger problems and stacked them on top of each other. <laughs> I did want to ask you, Eli, when you were working at the Hearst Company, did you see um, like a room full of interns where they provide the pictures that they used to start the wars or <laughs> any other overlap with the, the movie Citizen Kane? No, dude. No, none, none of that. I, uh, many- I answered the door for FedEx a lot. I, I Boxes came back and forth, shit like that. Was there any Crazy Cat? Apparently, Hearst fucking loved Crazy Cat. The comic strip? Yeah. No, no. uh uh-huh. No, a lot of lot more cats and jammer kids than you'd think. Sorry, that was a that was a reference. Like I don't know who the fuck got that. <laughs> there will be like three people listening who are like, "Nice, nice." I'm gonna tell you, Apparently. whoever got that joke, I don't. I probably wouldn't hate to hang out with them. <laughs> like you know what cats and jammer kids is, and like Tin Pan Alley. What's your pro- what's your problem? <laughs> I was gonna say apparently Hearst William Randolph Hearst was like a big animal rights guy, not not people, but you know every other animal. <laughs> um, but yeah, and you know, I mean, it is interesting, Eli. You know, working for a Hearst company today, because you know what I want to do with this episode. Uh, we follow the usual formula. We'll kind of talk about the Hearst family in a loosely chronological terms, but I'm gonna I'm gonna do a very truncated version of the original. Uh, William Randolph Hearst and his father George Hearst. I'll do a short version of their biography because mainly what I want to talk about is what they're doing today. Uh, because I guess, you know, people, again, they have this idea, famous rich people, uh, the Rockefellers, uh, Hearst, you know, I think they have this idea that these are great men who, you know, rose from nothing to make their fortunes and then uh, they're not relevant. They're not, their kids aren't still rich and aren't still running the world the exact same way they were. And, you know, just the fact that you work for a, worked for a Hearst company uh, and, you know, probably are going to try and get a reference from there is, uh, is indicative of the amount of control this uh, fucking Rosebud guy still has on the the world we all live in. (laughs) Yeah, I never thought, I didn't even think about it. I had no idea until I was fired. I didn't hear, uh, I didn't know it was a Hearst company because they gave, I guess, every, um, every, uh, every, uh, every Hearst, uh, every Hearst person, like this guy, Frank, uh, Frank Benack, I guess, is like the, what do you call it, a CEO, president, 
He like he like fucking the king of mm-hmm. Hearst. He was the king of the Hearsts, and he um he uh gave he wrote a book and he gave everyone all employees in every Hearst company a free copy of this book and it's uh called Leave Something on the Table and it's got this fat old rich fuck on it and it's like a how to like <laughs> how to become rich for yourself or like it's like supposed to be like a memoir that's like motivational and I got that like two days before they fired me so. <laughs> That's fucking hilarious. I, I have the book. There's no way in the fuck I'm ever reading this book. But uh, I do want to find, uh, I don't know if y'all can still hear me. I, I took a screenshot of uh, a couple excerpts from the book that I thought was kind of funny. Let me uh, scroll back and try to find them real quick. Sorry. Oh, sure. Yeah, I'm scrolling, scrolling, Sean, if you want to uh, do some amazing banter. Is um is chapter one on his book on how to get rich? Is it like step one? Uh, have a great grandfather who kills gold miners <laughs> for trying to unionize. <laughs> Just really kill the shit out of some gold miners in the eighteen hundreds. Well, he he uh what he did was uh he talks about this lady who ran like Vogue or Cosmopolitan or some shit, and uh, here's here's an expert from it, and this just is like indication of how these people are. Uh, here's what he says: uh, Helen and David Brown had luggage and would travel. On any free trip, that is, Helen was notoriously cheap. She was known to regularly go back to the table at restaurants and retrieve part of the generous tips David would leave. Wow. <laughs> and this is, he's like trying to compliment her, I think. Right. <laughs> like, oh, isn't that frugal of her? Like, isn't that, uh. This is like, what, people who inherited. That's not incredibly rude. Yeah, it, it was like, she's like the owner of Cosmo <laughs> or something like that, or president, king of Cosmo, king, queen, whatever you want to call it. But I just, that was the first thing. I just opened he up gets to that. To... I was just like, how full of fucking out of touch, terrible monsters is this memoir? He's the he's the king of Cosmo, Cosmopolitan. He gets to do Prima Noctis and all the 37 orgasm tips. Hell yeah. What What is, uh, what's that word that you said? Uh, Prima the Noctis. Writer, orgasm. The writer of First that? Night. <laughs> <laughs> oh. I'm so retarded, stupid. Uh, no, what does pre-meniscus mean? The right of first night. Yeah. In the book, uh, uh, the great by the great Frank Benek, leave something on the table changed my life. Uh, was uh, he wrote about uh, Helen? Uh, she was not available for hire, and she would kind like hold on, sorry. While David was retrieving their luggage at the airport, Helen rushed outside and jumped in a cab. The driver, thinking he was finished for the day, told Helen that he was not available for hire in which he kindly leave his cab. She refused. <laughs> she refused. The police were called, and they actually booked Helen for disturbing the peace or some such offense. Uh, she had an unresolved record for San- with San Antonio police from years ago, blah, blah, blah. But this is all him, Kamala. He, she's just, like, fucking abusing this fucking worker, basically, who was just trying to go home right. to his family that he's going to lose any minute. Like, why the fuck... <laughs> Like the cops, had, like he's trying to compliment her spunk. Like, oh, what a, what a fucking firecracker right. this lady, just harassing the working class for not being at her right. fucking whim. The taxi driver's like, please, miss, I have to drive Sean to Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> but that is how backwards these billionaire families can be, where they take you know general uh, courtesy as fucking weakness. Why, why would you give a tip to a yeah. person that's decent? Literally just inheriting money and then like being a frugal saver by uh, stealing tips from the waitstaff. 
and, you know, being a piece of shit who doesn't tip 20% or whatever. If you can go back two generations or more and they're still rich, like, the 100% chance you're rich. Right. That's a great point, dude. It's so... That's why I don't like when, like, I, I am not... Uh, Full blown. I I wanted Bernie to win. I can I I fucking canvassed for him in Massachusetts. I'm not a full blown. I can't say I'm a full blown socialist. But I don't like when people say like, oh, socialism uh, promotes laziness and capitalism promotes hard work. Like these generate like kids inheriting their. What's more lazy? What's more promoting laziness than these fucking dynasties where kids just inherit this money without having to do shit for it? Yeah. Capitalism now, right. maybe it used to work, I don't know, but now th- th- it does not encourage hard work. Hard work is the fucking people I worked with at Walmart who also worked at fucking Burger King to make ends meet. Yeah. Those are the Absolutely. hardest working fucking people under capitalism. And they ain't getting, I know I'm not saying anything fucking new here, but I'm a dummy who's just realizing all this. So, But you know, it's, it's, <laughs> it's important me, it's though, Eli, because it's, it's very easy to come off as like, you know, obviously, I think a lot of fucking leftist socialism rhetoric is like, obviously any person has uh, observed these things of the world. And it's like, no, uh, people are in the dark, especially in this country. And the propaganda of rich people being fucking perfect and good and the thing you described earlier where it's like it just seems like rich people are rich and poor people are poor being a norm normality that's existed in this country has been something that all of us at one point had to be like no this shit's fucked up this is wrong yeah yeah and right. dude, I, I used to be real concerned i grew up in alabama was real conservative i was all about like capitalism free market because i was just like oh like yeah, like i don't want to get rich but what are they taking from me why would we not let them be as free as possible right. But, like, under capitalism and, like, property, all that shit, like, the freer the people at the top, like, restraints come down to people below. Mm -hmm. Like, it does inhibit the freedom of people underneath. I mean, I know you regret that greed is good tattoo now, but when you got it, you loved it. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, uh, you know, and and this is something we've talked about on the podcast or, you know, anybody could just read uh, Thomas Piketty's book or the Cliff Notes or a Vox summary of it uh, is basically this idea that, if you have a chunk of money, a chunk of capital, you're going to be able to get 4 to 6% annual return on passive investment, and then that'll just go on forever. So, you know, William Randolph Hearst gets a big chunk of money, and his kids cash, you know, 4 to 6% annual return every year forever, and they're still uh, worth combined about $26 billion, $28 billion today, according to Forbes. And we, we'll, we'll get into it a bit later, but, like, William Randolph Hearst actually very specifically constructed the trust that he gave to his kids so that they wouldn't be able to fuck it up. Right. It was basically like, yeah, you'll, you'll have these mansions and you'll have enough like play money and you cannot do anything with it. I'm going to have professionals who will have like, you know, the, will just make sure that you still get that passive income, but uh, I'm not going to allow you to basically work with that money. Right. Jesus. And, yeah, yeah, and uh, like we said, we'll get more into it, but I think we should just kind of explain the Hearst, briefly explain the Hearst company today, and then we'll start the chronological biographies. Uh, it's The company is called Hearst Communications, just according to the Financial Times. Uh, it owns newspapers such as the Houston Chronicle. It owns the magazine Cosmopolitan. You might know Cosmo. Um, it has uh, stakes in uh, A&E Network. ESPN. It has some television stations in Boston and Sacramento. It apparently also made investments in BuzzFeed and Vice. Oh, really? I think they also invested in the uh, the Vice um, 
their cable channel, Vice's, uh, yes, Vice Viceland. News or whatever it was, Viceland. Um, so, you know, it has all these uh, different uh, fingers and different pies. They own Fitch Ratings, one of the big three securities ratings agencies we'll talk about a little bit later. Um, but, you know, like Andy was saying about the trust, uh, just uh, according to um, uh, according to just Wikipedia, the way it was basically set up was that... Uh, um, Sorry, fuck, I gotta find this. Well, in the meantime, I have one of my patented book excerpts to read. Uh, <laughs> look, this 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 sums it up. This is from the great Frank Bilek again. Uh, leave something on the table, available in bookstores. Uh, <laughs> I she, she said he said uh, this sums up a lot about these people. I think it's subtle. This is not like a blatant thing, but it's subtle. Like I learned a lesson from the experience of managing someone as brilliant and motivated as Helen. She and David became far more than business associates. Our social lives often overlapped. The lesson, there is such a thing as getting too close. It can make carrying out the right business decision harder than it needs to be. So he's basically just saying, like, profits over people there. Oh, yeah. Like, to his soul, to his very soul, it, the, the core of his personal life, he puts profits over people. I didn't come here to make friends. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's also, it, I, I just realized that the reason you have that book is probably because he was trying to juice his New York Times bestseller numbers by, like, yeah. you know, providing a generous gift to everyone. Well, he left yeah. it on the table. That is, that is <laughs> the thing. Um, left it on the table yeah, and... along with a box for me to put all the stuff in and leave. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, and so just uh, with the trust that Hearst Communications um, that runs, you know, that we just mentioned open, owns all these properties, the trust that it runs is managed, was set up by William Randolph Hearst at his death in 1951. It was set up so that as long as any grandchild alive as of the time, or as long as any grandchild alive as the time of his death in 1951 is still alive, it's controlled by this... Uh, private family board of trustees, which is five from the Hearst family and eight Hearst executives. So basically, yeah, before he died, William Randolph Hearst set up this family trust that uh, has been running this company in perpetuity and, excuse me, and will be until all of his grandkids die. So he is still influencing events, you know, all throughout the United States and the world today, where they're running Cosmo, they got a big stake in ESPN, they're running one of the big three uh, securities ratings agencies. You know, it's just they exercise all this power without, I guess, m most people even having any idea that the Hearst family is, is running so many sectors of the U.S. economy. Yeah, I think if you just tell the average person that, they'll just be like, fucking... Go away. I, I have to work now. <laughs> or just like those words. I'm like interested in all this now. But I would have tuned out so like like a, a, a few years back, right when you started talking and I heard the word board of trustee, like I would have just tuned out. <laughs> like back then I was like, it's not worth it. Change is not worth it to have to learn what whatever the fuck equity means. <laughs> But it's boring shit. I feel like that. Do you think they make it boring on purpose just so that like the common the common folk won't look into it? Oh, absolutely, a hundred percent. Yeah, but part of it's just it's boring, and then another part is like people are just systemically like excluded from that knowledge. So, I mean, you won't you won't encounter that stuff in school like the children of Hearst would. Yeah, I mean, uh, something we talked about is everything that's uh, going on with the Federal Reserve and this massive coronavirus bailout, 
like all that shit is finance is made boring on purpose where you have the federal reserve putting trillions of dollars into uh what are called you know uh junk bond etfs or junk bond securities which we will actually talk about a little bit today in terms of fitch but uh when they say they're you know buying up trillions of dollars worth of junk bonds it's people don't understand this is garbage corporate debt that's not worth anything and because it's the Federal Reserve, the government is just buying it all up and giving it all these acronyms and, you know, making it all seem very confusing. You just don't notice uh, trillions of dollars of public money walking out the back door to bail out a bunch of people who uh, made a bunch of risky investments. And, uh, you know, they're just having the taxpayer get hosed on a bunch of worthless crap that they should take losses for. These people cannot lose money and they make sure it's boring to make sure they never, ever lose money. And what people take away from that is, hey, Trump gave me a thousand dollars i'm gonna vote for him yes he put his names on the checks what are y'all gonna spend that shit on uh i paid for a um flight to see my sister graduate from college in 2014 by putting it in my credit card (laughs) (laughs) sean you told me that you were gonna use it to hoard a bunch of hand sanitizer (laughs) (laughs) yes I'm going to I'm going to use my my check to pay for one tenth of my coronavirus treatment. <laughs> yeah, my shit's going right to rent. Has anyone had a rent freeze? No, no, I wish. no. That's so fucked up. Working, that just should have been, been a thing. That should have been the first fucking thing. Yeah, there, there's a couple of mo- there's a couple of movements going on in cities or for that. I'm I'm hoping with the Airbnb thing that uh, I mean, the way things are going with the bailouts, it probably won't happen. But. I just I just want the the rent market to explode after Airbnb goes tits up and just have like uh, just a five hundred dollar single bedroom in New York. That's the dream. (laughs) See, the problem is, though, I've been reading some articles about this with coronavirus. You actually have a bunch of foreign money rushing into the New York market. Mm Because, you know, people in like Peru or Brazil or whatever, whatever rich people around the world, they don't want to put their money in the bank. They just put it in New York real estate. They just buy these fucking overpriced condos that are all money laundering units because this is considered a safe investment. They just know that they're always going to fuck, you know, renters and uh, 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 people attempting to buy real estate residentially in New York are always going to get fucked because there's so much foreign money laundering flowing into the market. Yeah, my uh, my little brother works for the TSA at the airport, and he said uh, it's only like it's like seventy people a day go through, and it's just the weirdest motherfuckers, like motherfuckers who all <laughs> they, they just know that the prices are low, and they don't they probably don't know what coronavirus is. <laughs> <laughs> They're all That'd coughing. It would be sick to be one of these. Like, I mean, I guess Sean, you know what it's like, but like it would be like <laughs> no regard for any of this motherfuckers. <laughs> Yeah, just, like, imagine that freedom where you just, like, don't have a Twitter account where people can roast you for uh, recklessly violating quarantine. Yeah. You're just, like, completely indifferent to the, the whims and opinions of the Internet. You can just get some $70 flights to Hawaii. Oh, yeah. Eli, do you know what uh, Gore... V- Another Xer? I never thought y'all would ask. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, you're all good. Uh, go look up the Xer before I tell you this. Did you know that according to Gore Vidal, that he says that Orson Welles called a rosebud because Hearst called his mistress Marion Davis's clitoris that? Oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Rosebud may be the name of her clit, and that's why Orson Welles put it in a movie. Wow. 
mean, he was like a wow dude. So Hurst was just basically like a bro. Hurst was a bit of a bro. I don't know if he ate butt, but that man didn't give a fuck. I mean, but he's he's the son of a, a miner, and he's got money, and he can do whatever the fuck he wants. He didn't eat butt, but he flicked the bean. Well, like, what I would say with William Randolph Hearst is I, I think people have this idea, or maybe some people have this idea, with regards, you know, the original robber baron, American tycoons, that these were all self-made people who... Uh, clawed their way up from the bottom and became rich that way. And in the case of William Randolph Hearst, it's it's just not true at all. He was the son of a millionaire miner who uh, went to Harvard. He actually, William Randolph Hearst, ran the Harvard Lampoon for a bit. You don't mean, like, yes. he owned a mining company? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he okay, owned a bunch so yeah, of like you can't, you can't be like a, you can't just become a millionaire from, like, working the coal mines, right? No. Like, I was about to say, like, he had to no. own it. Or not, not unless you learn to code. <laughs> he was a, a grub staker is right yeah right but that's you know like uh literally the story with with william randolph hearst is his senator father bought him a newspaper his dad had a political career in california and so you needed at the in those times a, a propaganda newspaper to support your political career so his dad bought one and then he let his son run it because his dad was almost illiterate uh, but so, you know, with when we talk about Hearst family money, it doesn't even go back to William Randolph Hearst. It goes back even to before that to his father, George Hearst. Jesus. Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, yeah, I, I guess, I guess this, dude. well, we had a great plan known as the Bernie Sanders campaign. <laughs> and uh, now we're back to the drawing board for uh, for a little bit, at least. <laughs> just you're just drawing different different types of snake emojis. Like what if we what if we did it like this this time? Like how about a rattlesnake this time? <laughs> yeah, but like let's just try. Uh, you're, you've got like a little knob that says online misogyny. <laughs> so let's just turn this even more to the right and see if socialism appears. <laughs> but um, what what I would say uh, is I'll give you know a brief chronological. Cliff Notes version of um, George Hurst and William Randolph Hurst, and, and we can always, if we miss things, go back on a future episode. You could uh, spend hours talking about their lives in details, but the short version is, is basically this. Uh, George Hurst was born in 1820. He dies in 1891, um, but I was going to ask, you know, any of our listeners who have seen the, TV, the HBO TV show Deadwood actually are probably familiar with a version of the character George Hurst. And I believe, Eli, you're the only one among us, except for me, who has seen Deadwood. But actually, neither of us have finished Deadwood. But I got farther than Eli. I'm gonna. That's a great-ass show. It was good. I don't know why I stopped. I just got distracted. Well, you both have time now, so. <laughs> uh, the way William is kind of similar to with, to with William Randolph. George Randolph, uh, Deadwood was actually the name of his mistress's cooter. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but yeah, so any of our listeners who have um, seen Deadwood know that in Deadwood, he actually comes in, in the HBO show, jo George Hurst shows up at the town of Deadwood and buys a stake in a gold mine and his uh, employees, you know, kill some, some miners for attempting to, to organize a union. And it's a heavily fictionalized portrayal where he's the, the villain. 
but I shouldn't say it's heavily fictionalized because we know this is actually based on on real life. He really did, George Hurst really did go to the town of Deadwood and buy up a gold mine and was absolutely involved in murder there. Um, But even going farther back than that, uh, George Hurst, uh, just from a basic Wikipedia bio, was born again 1820 in Missouri, but uh, his father uh, was a Scots-Irish who came over and he apparently owned three small farms in Missouri. George Hurst's father, or George Hurst's father, did. He owned three small farms in Missouri, uh, where they utilized uh, African American slave labor. To uh, what's this? Huff- <laughs> yes, <laughs> is uh, so like the money doesn't even go all the way back to George Hurst. It actually goes back to George Hurst's father, who had slaves to work his three different farms, and. Uh, <clears throat> Apparently, they owned uh, a couple general stores as well. So they have these farms in Missouri. Uh, you know, slaves pick whatever the products are or plant and manage the farms, and then they sell them in general stores. So uh, the Hearst family wealth goes all the way back to its origins at slave labor. Patty actually atoned for this by uh, taking an M1 carbine to the fascist pigs <laughs> who uh, <laughs> oppressed African Americans. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, so George Hurst, again, born 1820, father, slave owner. Uh, George Hurst was almost illiterate for most all his life because, you know, public school didn't really exist back then. But George Hurst, early on, kind of studies mining. He learns about mines, he learns about mining, minerals, all this stuff. And George Hurst, in 1850, moves to California for the California Gold Rush, which, of course, breaks out in 1849. So, you know, he's about 30 years old. He uh, is originally running his dad's general stores, but then he goes west to California to mine and, uh, you know, be a grub staker, as we said. And uh, the basic story there is in 1859, him and one of his partners strike what is uh, what becomes known as the Comstock load. Uh, You might have heard of this in U.S. history class. It's basically one of the largest uh, silver deposits ever found in U.S. history is found in around 1858, 1859 in uh, present-day Nevada. I believe then it was uh, part of the state of Utah, though. But this is kind of George Hurst's initial fortune is he's out there in California, gold speculating. Then he hears about this massive silver deposit, and him and his partner go over there, and they take a bunch of silver bullion out of that, and they make a big score. And this is what really makes him a rich person. Okay, this is from the book Leave Something on the Table by the great Frank Benek. <laughs> I like how the book is called Leave Something on the Table, but apparently not a tip. <laughs> yeah, you know, something. Listen to this humble brag, dude. Uh, he, he was talking about how Barack uh, quoted him or something like that. Barack Obama, Barack Obama that, that is, uh, <laughs> quoted, quoted him at some function. Uh, and then he says, what he says, in 2018... When I got the opportunity to speak to Mrs. Obama on the occasion of previewing her book, Becoming, I told her what her husband had said was perhaps the most flattering and humbling thing ever said about me by a president of the United States. (laughs) Dude, what a fucking dildo. (laughs) What a dumb piece of shit. Jesus. I uh, liked the way you uh, put that fear in that uh, child's eyes before you drove the knife into it. We, uh, <laughs> we, uh, we got a we got a lot of great adrenochrome. Uh, and I, I do want night. I do want y'all to know these are I literally opened I read four excerpts. 
I've opened this book four times. <laughs> I literally found something every, I found something reprehensible, something reprehensible every, I did not do, I don't want anyone to think I did any research or work for this podcast. I literally opened the book four times and there's something off-putting every single time I opened the book. Four pages, four home runs. This guy's batting a thousand. Uh, so George Hurst gets his fortune, his initial fortune in this uh, silver mine, the Comstock load, and then he uses this to invest in other mines. Because again, this is how you become rich. It's not mining, it's buying up stakes in other mines and mining properties. And so again, the the thing that really makes him even more wealthy than he was before is the town of Deadwood. And um, uh, basically, just according to this... Uh, uh, basic Wikipedia history of George Hurst. Uh, Hurst uh, bought a whole bunch of what was called the uh, the Homestake property. Uh, the Homestake property is uh, again a big gold mine uh, just outside the town of Deadwood. Uh, in 1877, George Hurst goes to Deadwood. He takes active control of the mine property. Apparently, him and his partners bought their claim for it uh, for about seventy thousand U.S. dollars in uh, 1877, again, the Homestake Deposit. And uh, just quoting from w Wikipedia, Hearst consolidated and enlarged the Homestake property by fair and foul means. He bought out some adjacent claims and secured others in the courts. A Hearst employee killed a man who refused to sell his claim, but was acquitted in court after all the witnesses disappeared. Hearst purchased newspapers in Deadwood to influence public opinion. An opposing newspaper editor was physically attacked on a Deadwood street. Uh, and, you know, and then within three years, he managed to uh, significantly recoup his investment. He walks out of Deadwood, a very rich man. But this is after murdering a guy who, who, wouldn't, who wouldn't sell uh, his claim to Hearst. And, and then, you know. Right. And then having witnesses disappear and then, you know, beating up a newspaper editor in Deadwood who was criticizing him. So, I mean, this is something where a lot of great American fortunes of the 19th century and uh, 18th century are kind of based on this just straight up gangster violence. Dude, if and I disappear, you know who to look at. Go to Hearst. <laughs> look into Hearst if I disappear. Now I'm scared. <laughs> nah. Well, it's it is something where like you know we've done episodes about uh, countries like Colombia or you know uh, we haven't done any episodes, but you could take a look at Guatemala or Nicaragua. When you see these initial fortunes in you know South and Central America today and other quote unquote you know third and second world countries, these initial fortunes are usually based on the exact same kind of violence you see in the original American West. It's just today. You know, the money's been established, the property rights have been established, so you don't need to use private violence anymore. You can just have the U.S. government carry out violence on your behalf. But when these initial fortunes were built, yeah, you had to be like George Hurst and kill kill miners for trying to organize unions and kill the people who wouldn't sell their gold stake to you. And this is what the Hurst money uh, today is based on. Well, now, yeah, now the rich people, they're like more sneaky about it. They're like, now they like convince you unions are bad and shit. <laughs> like I went when I worked at Walmart, dude. Uh, they made us uh, sit down and watch a video about why unions are bad and what we should, how we should react if someone comes up and tries to like ask us about joining a union. Yeah. Wait, did it sound like this? You've made a great choice to work for Walmart, and we're glad you're here. 
But the reality is, Turn it off. you're not Turn the it only off. one. <laughs> Turn it off. Turn it off. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah, like back back in 1850, they would have just hired a Pinkerton to kill somebody. But now they like they're more sophisticated, and they'll sit you down as like a Walmart greeter and like tell you about like the whole history of labor unions. Mm-hmm. Being a being a door greeter, like usually they have the like. I feel like your listeners are probably left wing, not I'm like a dumbass edgelord. So I don't like the people who are usually the greeters were, I don't know what the PC term is, like brain cripples, I guess. <laughs> like they, it was like, well, like, so when I had to do it, I was kind of a little bit like mad. I was like, really? <laughs> no, I didn't really, I didn't really hate it then. I didn't kind of, that was before I knew that being a door greeter at Walmart was a punchline. I didn't know that then. I was just like, oh yeah, you just sit here and people tell me to go fuck myself. Like that, that's. <laughs> Eli, when I worked at Safeway, I was, you know, uh, you would. Uh, my job was to grab the shopping carts and like clean up the shelves. And one of my coworkers was mentally disabled, and he was actually much better at his job than I was. <laughs> so that was a bit of an ego trip. Walmart, uh, um, Walmart felt soulless. Walmart felt ter- terribly so. Like it was bleak there, man. It was weird because I worked at Walmart and Kmart, and Kmart was a little bit like less pay and shit but it was just like you felt better walking in there sure. like they, they treated you like a human being it was like warmer not that they came probably i assume did bad things too but uh walmart you I'm sorry, i assume you already did an episode on the waltons right yeah we actually uh we invited eli originally for that episode we uh this scheduling didn't work out but uh yeah we did a two-parter on walmart it's very uh, interesting if you ever need any more walmart content i'm your guy <laughs> For anyone that doesn't know, that's the Walmart hold music. Is that right, Andy? Right. Oh no, you've got dueling drops. They it have is their own radio station. Really? Yeah. Yeah, they play Walmart radio. They have like a DJ like, "Well, this is Walmart radio," and they play that uh, "All Out of Love" song by Air Supply Ugh. at least once an hour. I-, I wish there was a Walmart <laughs> Alex Jones for the really fun sections of Walmart. Well, you know what? I'm gonna have to give you credit with that when I get my start my new podcast because <laughs> that sounds like a great idea just play it in the fertilizer section <laughs> it is uh it is too bad our listeners can't see the uh the Skype video because you could actually physically see Eli experience PTSD when we played that Walmart video <laughs> like, like... I don't even know I don't know if it was the specific that was even the specific one or whatever, but I could tell, like, oh, yeah, that that's in the same genre right, of right. what I listened like, what I had to hear. Right. No, they tell you, did they tell you, like, if you see a union organizer try to give you a, a card, like, to tell... If they yeah, yeah, they had the act out. In the video, they had the guy come the up manager. and try to give you a card. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're supposed to, like, you're supposed to just show the card to the manager or something like that. If you see a union organizer, they are trying to give you AIDS, and the only way to stop them is to destroy the brain or remove the head. <laughs> Dude, well, I'm saying, like, we had to do so many fucking <laughs> terrible videos. Like, we had to watch, like, a dumbass video on why unions are bad. We had to watch a fucking video on how sexual harassment, I guess, is bad. That's some fucking bullshit, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, yeah, I... Fucking terrible place. <laughs> God, that's a good video. That was a good video. At my uh, old job, we had... Um, uh a training on respecting diversity and uh or it was like it, it was kind of like diversity training and it was it developed by people at facebook 
And by the time I'd done it, we'd already done our Facebook episode, and I already knew that Facebook had, like, racial targeting going on, right, like, right. in its algorithm to sell ads. And then it was these Facebook people saying, like, yeah, you know, it's it's good to be, like, if you see it happening, stand up as a bystander. You know, you shouldn't – I didn't realize my privilege. And it's, like, you probably realized your privilege when you were uh, coding your algorithm to tell if someone's black based on how they type their posts. <laughs> <laughs> an extra muscle in that keystroke thing <laughs> well dude they uh yeah they didn't even try at walmart they didn't even try to sell they didn't even try to push di- racial diversity on us <laughs> like they didn't even like it was london ohio dude there was no fucking uh there was my boy in the garden center he was he was a black guy i liked him dude we'd hang out but no if they did a video like if they did a racial uh, diversity video at Walmart, it would start with like, "Look, if there's one thing we hate more than unions, <laughs> it's racial diversity." <laughs> what if, uh, what if the Facebook algorithm can tell if a user is white or black by how much they u- they type in the N word, but it's actually way more for white people? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah, if uh, the black users bl- barely use it at all. Mm-hmm. Um. But yeah, so like we said here, George Hurst dies in 1891 after, you know, literally murdering people to get a massive gold mine in uh, Deadwood, South Dakota. Uh, And this is the bulk of his his fortune. He uh, after he gets, you know, after he secures all this profit from the mine, he moves back to California. He's elected to the California Assembly. He's later appointed as a Democrat Democrat. Uh, senator from California back when the governor would appoint senators before they did uh, direct elections of senators. So he's a senator from California for a bit. And um, uh, despite being basically illiterate for his entire life, (laughs) uh, as a senator, he needs a newspaper. So he buys the San Francisco Examiner. uh, And then in 1887, he lets his son, William Randolph Hearst, run it. And William Randolph Hearst is, of course, the most famous Hearst, the inspiration for Citizen Kane. He's born in 1863, dies in 1951. Uh, and like we mentioned earlier, he's uh, he's born rich. So he's taught in private school. He uh, tours Europe as a child. He attends Harvard. He's an editor. I, I think he handled the finances at the Harvard Lampoon, the Harvard comedy paper. Did which he really? Yeah, he did. He actually made so much money at the Lampoon. They kept having to throw like dances and shit so that they wouldn't have a surplus of money. And according to one thing I read, apparently his signature move would be to take a shit in these these like uh, pots and then send it to professors. And so after two years of dealing with that, Harvard's like, fuck this shit. We got to kick this kid out. Wow, now you're trying to make me like him. (laughs) I was going to say, compared to like every Harvard Lampoon editor who goes on to write for SNL now, that's actually pretty funny. Yeah, Yeah, that's hilarious, dude. That's the funniest thing I've ever heard come out of Harvard. (laughs) I mean, between the guys like Gates and Hearst, I don't know if you're financially better off finishing Harvard or dropping out of Harvard. I'll tell you this. Once when I worked in Walmart, uh, uh, someone took a shit in a urinal. And that guy is funnier than anyone who ever went to fucking Harvard. What if it was like one of those Antifa black block guys just masked up? Like, we're taking direct action against the Waltons. Shitting in the urinals, baby. Why's gotta be black? 
it is too bad that uh, uh, William Randolph Hearst did not write for the Harvard Lampoon in uh, the year 2000 or 2010 because he would just go on to uh, write for an unwatchable sitcom instead of become a media tycoon. <laughs> uh, uh, but that career pathway was was not available yet. Uh, but yeah, yeah he'd, so be a, he'd be an Elizabeth Warren supporter. Too. Oh, yeah, 100 <laughs> percent. Absolutely. Elizabeth Warren with a Buttigieg backup. It was. It's funny that uh, because William Randolph Hearst was apparently a major um, FDR supporter in his original run for president, and it was entirely he. He then, after FDR became president, he turned and like shit on him constantly in his papers. And the entire reason that he supported FDR is because FDR was opposed by this uh, New York politician Al Smith, and Hearst <laughs> just fucking hated that guy, so he supported FDR to piss off Al Smith. You know, it's kind of uh, insensitive to say that FDR ran for president. <laughs> yeah, FDR rolled for president. He definitely <laughs> trundled for president. He crippled his way there. <laughs> he crawled across the kitchen floor for president. <laughs> his legs didn't work for president. <laughs> Take that, you dead bitch. Fucking, fucking retarded ass legs. <laughs> <laughs> FDR like totally unable to walk going well at least I'm not Catholic like fucking Al Smith huh? <laughs> uh, but yeah so Hearst uh, William Randolph Hearst takes over his father's newspaper and again you know rich kid he won re-election three times to pit to to uh, make fun of the Holy Trinity <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so William Randolph Hearst takes over his dad's newspaper. Again, he's not a self-made man. He's got money that goes all the way back to slavery. He goes grows up rich, but he is successful as a newspaper man. He's one of the founders, interestingly enough, along with Thomas Pulitzer, of what's called yellow journalism, uh, which was not just called that because it was uh, violently racist against Chinese and Japanese people, which it was, but uh, it's uh, mainly just for its sensational style where they just print, you know, rumors as fact, and they have all sorts of, um, you know, uh, stuff we're familiar with with modern tabloids, where you have sex and violence on the front page, all sorts of uh, gossip and rumors. And uh, this is actually a style that makes uh, the uh, San Francisco Examiner uh, very popular, and it eventually becomes the best-selling paper uh, within San Francisco. You know, say what you will about the racism, but uh, Crazy Cat Goes to an Opium Den was one of their best <laughs> subplots. <laughs> so yeah, uh, William Randolph Hearst, off of the success of the San Francisco Examiner, goes to New York City, he buys a newspaper there, and then this is, you know, what's called the yellow journalism era. Didn't even have to do any is... mics first. <laughs> <laughs> This fucking lampoon guys just going right to the the big time. But yeah, so he buys a newspaper there, and what's called the Yellow Journalism Era is started by the competition between Thomas Pulitzer and William Hearst's papers within New York City, but also around the country. Was Pulitzer um, a good guy? Uh, he's kind of the same deal. I mean, they were both pushing for the Spanish-American War, both printing a bunch of, you know, racist half-truths and uh, general innuendo. Uh, but, you know, Pulitzer is, I guess, more sanitized because the prize for great journalism is named after him now. There is actually a, a, a nice little connection for, between the Spanish-American War and the um, adventures of Patty Hearst that we'll get into in a little bit. 
but like you know the the basic story with the Spanish American War, uh, you might uh, it's covered in the movie Citizen Kane. Uh, it's of course in 1898. You know, Cuba, <laughs> Cuba tries to get independence from Spain, and uh, Pulitzer's papers and Hearst papers are all publishing you know constant stuff about atrocities committed by the Spanish. Um, I'm forgetting the name. There's some incident where a uh, a woman is strip searched by um, the Spanish, like. And then the Hearst papers all write about how, like, men, male Spanish people, you know, manhandled her and uh, felt her up in this uh, this search. But it was actually conducted by uh, by a female Spanish officer. And, uh, you know, it, it's really all just played up and hyped uh, uh, in the, the most. That, that doesn't sound like the United States media. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, so there's all this innuendo going on, but what actually brings the U.S. into war against Spain is the explosion of the ship, the USS Maine, um, and this happens in 1898. Uh, this is a U.S. ship that's stationed in Cuba. It explodes, and at the time, the Hearst Papers and the Pulitzer Papers are, you know, they have uh, illustrations of the explosion. They're all writing about how um, this was a mine planted by the Spanish, or this was sabotage planted by the Spanish. Um, you know, we can't wait for any investigation. We have to go to war now. And it's since come out in like the 1970s, there was an investigation that determined most certainly this was, um, an internal explosion within the ship. It was, uh, uh I forget the exact circumstances, but it was like, uh, I think one of the engines blew up and then that ignited a munitions supply on the ship. So it was completely not. Well, yeah, Spanish. Well, Goldberg cartoons were very popular back then. <laughs> <laughs> so even the tragedy, if 9-11 had happened back then, it would have been really wacky. There would have been like the plane hit one building, which hit another building. <laughs> triggered a mousetrap type ball rolling down. And... That hit the Pentagon. I did not shut up. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Right. Uh, sorry. So it was a uh, the USS Maine blew up most most certainly because of a boiler explosion within the ship. But that didn't stop all the newspapers from running with, "Oh, this was a dastardly Spanish attack, and we have to go teach the Dagos a lesson." And that kicks off a massive war. Look at Sean loose with the slurs in Connecticut. Really, really, <laughs> fucking coming into his own with his new neighbors. Yeah, uh, they. <laughs> Once you become a Connecticut blue blood, you get your Dago pass, <laughs> and you can call your waiter a Dago and then take 10% of the tip back as you leave. Now, am I wrong? I th- I thought Dagos were Italians. It's both. To Sean, it's both. Yeah. Have you seen Faulty Towers? Yeah, that's a good show. Yeah, it's a funny show, but they call the Spanish waiter a Dago like every episode. Oh, my only reference is uh, what noise does an Italian flat tire make? Dago wop wop. <laughs> oh, nice dude. Speaking of that, the the woman that Sean was mentioning a moment ago that was that was manhandled by the Cubans. Apparently, uh, Hearst would fly her to New York and put her up in a hotel and put her in like princess garb, and it became a sensationalized piece of the paper at the time because it was such a huge news story. I mean. Hearst really kind of figured out that people are willing to read trash and believe it at this era of newspaper boom more than they are willing to read, you know, dreary journalism that we know today. And it's partially because of the implosion that would happen uh, a few decades later after these events. 
Oh, that's how they they sold the uh, uh, Gulf War on the same kind of shit where they uh, got this uh, young woman in front of Congress to say that the Iraqis, when they invaded Kuwait, they pulled babies out of incubators and threw them on the floor to die. And uh, then it was later revealed that she was the daughter of the ambassador from Kuwait to uh, Washington, D.C. Wow. Yeah. I remember that that clickbait article. These hoes be lying. <laughs> that, that fake news. Right. And then, of course, you have the Gulf of Tonkin for Vietnam and everything with the Iraq War. I mean, this is a pretty common media playbook that uh, he really helped set up with the Spanish-American War. Um, and like Yogi was mentioning, this lady who was, was uh, searched by Spanish officials, she was like a paid spy for him who was like reporting on, you know, uh, supposed atrocities committed by the Spanish uh, and going back and forth. So it makes sense that the Spanish would like search her for whatever if she's leaving. And then it gets played up into, you know, she was groped and sexually assaulted by these devious uh, uh, pussy crazed dagos. But so one last thing uh, regarding the, the Spanish-American War in the USS Maine, there's this uh, famous story of uh, a Hearst photographer named Frederick Remington, or he was an artist, excuse me, an artist hired by Hearst. He went to Cuba, and uh, Her- uh, Hearst hired him to provide illustrations for the paper to um, accompany articles about the Spanish Revolution, or the Cuban Revolution against Spain. And... Uh, he telegraphs Hearst in 1897, everything is quiet, there is no trouble, there will be no war, I wish to return, to which Hearst's uh, alleged reply is the famous quote, please remain, you furnish the pictures, and I'll furnish the war. And this is, of course, quoted in Citizen Kane as well. But it's the idea and that you just get an tomorrow Ill- never dies. <laughs> yes. But... It's the idea, and uh, in this case it turned out to be true, that you just get a big picture of a ship blowing up, and then you get uh, illustrations of all these atrocities, and you just splash them across the front page of every major newspaper, and you know the, the U.S. public will be primed and ready to go for, uh, for an imperial war. I like how dumb people were in the 19th century, where they just look at a drawing and they're like, yeah, that must be real. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, apparently, uh, after the USS Maine blew up, uh, Hearst like started with an article that had an illustration of a, a Spanish torpedo plant it beneath the USS Maine and detonate it from the shore. Uh, he then followed it up with an article containing diagrams and blueprints of the secret torpedoes used by Spain. Uh, and you know, this is all just completely made up. Uh, even the uh, How were they made with aluminum the, uh, tubes. <laughs> it's just like proof by picture, basically. Right, right. Like you just hire. This was back in the days. You just hire an artist to like draw fucking blueprints of like torpedoes, and people <laughs> will be convinced. Yeah, that could never happen now, though. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the news consumer is much smarter today. In a lot of uh, videos of on historians talking about yellow journalism, they are very, very, very quick to be like, "This is not a racist term." The yellow part of yellow journalism is not at all Asian. It just refers to the fact that it's tabloids and sensationalism. It's not about Asians. And the the quickness to deny that something is not about Asians is very funny to me. Why does it have to be yellow? <laughs> you all right, Andy? Yeah, water went down the wrong tube. He, he has yeah, the virus so... again. Yeah, yeah. 
This time rabies. It's hard to keep the water down. <laughs> yeah, fortunately, uh, news consumers are much smarter today, and they know that you can just uh, cure coronavirus by destroying a 5G cell tower. <laughs> But so, you know, there's, of course, with the help of Thomas Pulitzer and uh, William Randolph Hearst, there's this Spanish-American war. The U.S. ends up occupying the Philippines. It's, uh, uh, you know, a, a big tragedy. Lots of war crimes are committed as a result. And this just kind of shows his power, William Randolph Hearst's power, uh, because by the 1920s, depending on the source, either one in every four or one in every five Americans were reading a Hearst paper. And, uh, you know, people will talk about how the way he would use his power is he would have his reporters go after every U.S. congressman and, like, stake out their house and then just demand they answer whatever questions he had. So he had a, a, a very big platform in terms of shaping public opinion because he could just demand Congress answer his issues and one in every four people in the country was reading his paper. So, you know, and, and uh, we're... Uh, we're going to kind of cut this into two parts. We will continue with uh, the present Hearst family. But this just gives you an idea about this guy who inherited this slave and gold miner money and uh, then used it to become one of, uh, if not the most powerful media barons in the United States, the first real media tycoon, and used that to shape the agenda of the U.S. government. And with that, this has been Grub Stickers. I'm Yogi Paywall. I'm Steve Jeffries. I'm Eddie Palmer. I'm Eli Sayers. I'm Sean P. McCarthy. Uh, we'll be back in uh, just a second with more on the Hearst family. Rosebud.